Thank you very much indeed, and good afternoon. Um, I have to start off by craving your indulgence and apologising in advance. I'm going to have to go at about quarter past five. My large extended family in London decided at relatively short notice to put on a very big shindig, um, which I'm under a three-line whip to attend, so I'm very sorry about that. I'll only be able to participate in some of the uh, subsequent discussion. Um, I have indeed just retired from the TUC, uh, although that was about a month ago. I've had some urgent uh, emails since then from Francis O'Grady uh, and from John Monk saying, is there any possibility of my doing a little bit more work for the, the lovely TUC uh, in the House of Lords while the trade union bill um, crawls its way through that? And I found that absolutely irresistible um, because I'll come on to the trade union bill just briefly in a second. Um, but I think if we can't knock some lumps out of that in the House of Lords, uh, then that's a dereliction of our duty in the movement. So I'm very, very happy to be able to lend uh, what expertise I have to working with Tony Young John Monks and others um, in trying to demolish as much of that horrendous bill as possible. I thought I'd just say a few words, um, perhaps just quickly bring you up to date with where I think the TUC is or was a month ago um, in terms of, of what's happening at the moment. I don't think I could exaggerate um, or really I could overstate uh, the, the, the horror which has gripped the TUC at the moment, and I, by TUC I mean the trade union movement, about the trade union bill. I mean, winding back a bit, everyone's been talking about different elections. Um, the recent election result was a huge shock to the TUC. Um, like everybody else, we took the polls quite seriously. As John Crudder said, we've been engaging in, actually, I think, very exciting debates with the Labour Party about industrial democracy and some of those issues. We haven't got as far as we wanted to get we have the difficult job in the TUC of bringing affiliates with us on everything and sometimes there are differences of opinion to put it politely um, between affiliates about where the movement should be going um, but we were heading in the direction of either feeling quite confident that there would be a Labour government or that at the worst there'd be uh, a coalition government with Labour in the driving seat. Uh, and so I, I, I'm not joking about this. When we had a meeting about a month before the election in Congress House, uh, we were asked to prepare between us, the heads of department, the um, Praetorian Guard, as John Monks used to call us, were asked to produce um, a paper looking at what would happen in each possible uh, election result. And we sat down together, we did our work, we did all the stuff on, on a Labour government, we did a lot of work on a, a Labour-led coalition. We even did some work um, on that coalition being put back into place again with the Conservatives and the Liberals. But for Conservative government, we just put too awful to think about. <laughs> now, that's true. That is, that is all we did at that point in time. So you can imagine the shock um, that morning when everyone came back in with a majority Conservative government and knowing that in their manifesto, one of their prized pieces of legislation that they would be putting through would be the trade union bill. And lo and behold, we have the trade union bill. And you talk about evidence-based research and so on and so forth. But if you look at the trade union bill, documentation, you'll see that a body called the Regulatory Policy Committee, which I've been on for a while, um, which has, here's the Warwick link, which has somebody from Warwick on it, Jonathan Cave, who's a very, very fine economist, um, took one look at all the various bits of the trade union bill um, and the so-called evidence that had gone out for them.
with a very, very brief consultation, seven weeks over the summer holidays, um, and discovered that the whole thing was completely unfit for purpose and was just made up, basically. But this government is absolutely shameless, and they're going ahead with this non-evidence-based uh, piece of legislation. Is the trade union movement in a mood, in a state, in a fit state to deal with all this? Well, perhaps I should just say a few things about the state of the trade union movement today. In the TUC, uh, we have just over six million members of affiliated trade unions. If you then add in the Royal College of Nursing and the British Medical Association, which are not in the TUC but are very large trade unions, that gets you up to a slightly more respectable figure. But it's still only uh, a relatively, relative to the days we've been talking about earlier, small proportion now uh, of working people who are in, who are actually members of trade unions. Uh, obviously, collective bargaining has wider scope than that, and unions punch above their weight. That's always been the case, particularly now in the public sector, which is where the majority of active trade, unions, trade unionism is still. But you can see that trade unions have an absolutely massive challenge. Linda talked absolutely rightly um, about the fragmentation in the labour market now. Uh, I've got one of my daughters who's got a very good degree, who's working at the moment um, in a temporary zero-hours contract job because there's nothing else she can get just now. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of young people are in these kind of peripatetic work situations. A lot of them would love to join trade unions, but it doesn't make any sense. If you're being paid just above the minimum wage and you're, there's no union presence where you're working, um, what would be the benefit of actually coughing up some of your hard-earned wage to join a trade union? That said, I think some unions like Unite are onto something when they start talking about organising out in the community. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that at all, except to say that it brings me on to, I think, my first main point which is the model of trade unionism today because it doesn't really work in the modern labour market. It's based on a fairly old-fashioned uh, way of organising that relies entirely on voluntary shop stewards, whatever they're called now, reps, union reps, uh, being able to work with a large group of people in one place. That's how it always used to work. That is no longer possible. Um, if you're really going to represent large numbers of these young people, you're going to have to be here, there and everywhere. And their needs from the trade union are much, much, much greater now. They desperately need help if they get into trouble at work. They, they can't afford to go to the tribunals. They can't afford to pay lawyers. There's no legal aid around for them to enforce the various individual rights, some of which do indeed come from European Union membership. They need to have a friend at work. They need a voice at work. But the unions, on the other hand, are finding their income is rapidly reducing. You can't ask this large sort of group of you know, mobile young workers, as I've said, to pay very much towards uh, their membership. So unions are facing a sort of rapidly plunging income level um, with huge demands on their time if they're going to reach out to all these workers uh, who now make up, I think, the majority of the labour market. So there's a huge challenge for unions now, an existential crisis, if anything, um, in terms of what they do and where they go and how they continue to be the independent voice at work. That's very important. Uh, unions don't want to start taking money. They don't want to get any from this government. They don't want to take money from employers. That's critically important to UK trade unionism. But then where do you go? It really does look pretty desperate from where I've been sitting. And unions are gripped by that at the moment. But even more than that, currently, they're absolutely gripped and obsessed with the trade union bill. Now, the reasons for that are fairly obvious. I'm not going to go through the bill in detail. This is only a very quick um, talk. But there's been a lot of uh, newspaper coverage of things like ballot thresholds. Um, and quite rightly, you know, unions have objected to that. 
but in a sense, actually, if you go out and talk to union reps and talk to people out there, that isn't really the major objection uh, to what the Conservatives are doing. In fact, some unions will say to you privately and even publicly, actually, if you can't get your members out up to that kind of 40% level, then you're not really doing a very good job. And maybe you shouldn't be going out on strike if you can't command that sort of level of support in the workplace. You need to go back and do more work on how you're communicating the importance of the dispute to your members and bringing them along with you. So I think you'll find that unions are not really actually focusing very much on the thresholds issue, even though the politicians, um, and I think to some extent I'm afraid the Labour Party, are still obsessing with that particular aspect of the bill. It's not even the case that you need to obsess too much about the civil liberties aspects of some of the bill, which is to do with picketing um, and ridiculous, unbelievable proposals that unions um, have to wear a specified type of armband when they're on a picket line. <coughs> Can you imagine writing that into a piece of employment legislation? It really beggars belief. That's all being dealt with actually very effectively by the civil liberties lobby and Liberty and others are very well connected and are pulling in Tory MPs and others behind them now and driving a bit of a wedge through that. There's been a victory in the House of Commons on the bit of the bill that required trade unions to give notice of what sort of media communications they would be engaged with in two weeks' time when they would be on a picket line. I mean, that's what this bill has got in it. But what really, I think, worries the, the TUC um, and, and unions at large is some other aspects of the bill which are very, very clever and really, really nasty and show the absolute contempt, I think, that this government now has, not just for unions, actually, but for decent employment relations because what they're going to do is drastically curb the amount of paid time off that union reps can have to do their jobs and once you get rid of that this whole edifice on which trade unions are based is going to well I wouldn't say it's going to collapse but it's in very serious trouble so you can see I'm not exaggerating and unions aren't exaggerating their fears about some of the less talked up aspects of this piece of legislation um, so I think it's very important to remember that Chekhov is the other issue. If you stop um, deductions being taken off by the employer, particularly in the public sector at source, unions have then got to build up an apparatus for chasing their members, collecting the subs and so on. Now that may present opportunities for better communications with the members, but in the short term that's inducing panic as well and I'm not at all surprised. So moving on, um, we've been asked to look at the voluntary approach versus the, uh, the legal approach. I mean where I see it, there's two sort of big strands of union survival strategies as far as they're identifying themselves and Sue's on our general council and I have to say I haven't heard any sort of particularly strategic discussing going on in recent months uh, which is a bit worrying but it's certainly the case that there are some unions that still have very good relations with their employers um, and actually I was always just a quick anecdote I was incredibly surprised once when I was a bit younger to see the late Bob Crow embracing somebody from what used to be called rail track very warmly and they were shaking hands and chattering about stuff just as you know we were in the run-up to some sort of big rail dispute and actually to assume that certain political leadership in unions never allows any kind of engagement with the employer is bogus politics because actually while there's a lot of um i hardly dare say this it's what we used to call francis o'grady and i used to call willy waving so um reflecting on linda's comment about the gender bias in this audience um but while some union leaders are very keen to do that kind of 
I don't use the word posturing, but sort of, um, you know, uh, aggressive politicisation of issues, grandstanding, thank you, yes. Actually, underneath, there's vast amounts of very good work still being done. I'm not allowed to use the word partnership anymore, but there are those sort of arrangements which are still delivering, where there are decent employers who understand the importance of union workplace safety reps and all the rest of it in contributing to productivity and so on. On the other hand, um, there is also this strand of unionism, and they sit together quite often, which is about going out into the community, anger, you know, we're going to take this government on, we are political, we're part of a wider social fabric, we're going to give the government absolute hell. Both these things have their place, and both these things are reliant to a greater or lesser extent on some legal intervention. Um, I. I'm quite cynical now um, about how much more the courts are going to deliver in terms of the framework of law that we have. Um, the outings to the European Court of Human Rights on collective issues have been pretty depressing. Um, we're not getting very far. There's been the Viking Laval cases, which really have begun to knock the stuffing out of what we had assumed was a right to free collective bargaining. Um, uh, lawyers here will know an awful lot more about that than I do. Um, and even Unison had done a fantastic job attempting to get judicially reviewed the employment tribunal fees, but that's not going terribly well, and that's taking up an awful lot of union resource. So I think unions are now thinking about legal interventions and how they're going to do them, where they're going to do them, um, and whether they're going to do them. And Linda's talked very eloquently about the state of individual uh, rights and employment tribunal fees and all the rest of it. But just very quickly finishing, as I've been asked to do, not been asked to finish, I've been asked to just say something extremely quickly about the role of academics. I mean, I couldn't have done my job at the TUC at all without a huge amount of support from various uh, distinguished people here and elsewhere in universities around the country who were able to provide us with a huge amount of statistical and other information that we would never have been able to get hold of that's proved to be absolutely invaluable. Unions now, by and large, have very little research facility left. They simply don't have it. They're going to be absolutely reliant on getting evidence and getting other people to help them uh, do labour market analysis and all the rest of it. So to that extent, there's quite a nice open market. On the other hand, as I've said, they are desperately under-resourced now. So if anyone thinks that a union is going to come into a university and say, here's a you know, quarter of a million quid, I want you to do this and this, it ain't going to happen. Um, and I think, as Linda was saying, a lot of uh, unions now work with think tanks rather than directly with universities. But there is, if offers can be made and money can be got collaboratively for this, and I know nothing comes free, I think once the trade unions have sort of got through the trade union bill and are living with what the residue of that, what it does for them, there's going to be a big need, actually, for an awful lot of help from academia. So so that's my last sort of word, really. I mean, it's not going to go away, but it's going to be a very different pitch, and it's a very, very different trade union movement that we're now living with. Thank Sarah, you. If you